Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with the lovely Cheryl Chan. Cheryl is joining us all the way from Singapore and is a fellow Spoonie and founder of A Chronic Voice, so you may be familiar with her across social media. She lives with numerous chronic illnesses. She's going to tell us all about them. So Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Um, It's lovely to be here. Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. Let's start from give us your life story. Can you tell us when and how you first realized you were sick? What steps you've taken to control your health? I know there are multiple diagnoses. So hit us with barrage. (laughs) Yeah. So it started when I was 14, when I had a mild stroke. So half my body was numb from head to toe. And I just um, had to drag myself to a nearby clinic. And he referred me to the hospital, which I had to wait three months for. And um, they found that I had antiphospholipid syndrome. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, it's a blood clotting disorder where my body kind of produces uh, extra antibodies, which clots the blood. So I need to take um, blood thinners to every day to just uh, thin my blood more than the average person. Hmm. Yeah, so that's how it all started. And I was told I couldn't play any more contact sports, uh, which I loved as a young uh, young adult. Yeah, so it was a big change. Um, I mean, I was I just went home in shock and I just couldn't speak. And yeah, my mom came into my room at night and she just hugged me. She didn't say anything. And we started crying because it was, there's nothing to say really, you know, <clears throat> you're just overwhelmed. Yeah. What were the symptoms that led up to that diagnosis and you seeking out uh, medical treatment? I just had a mild stroke. Like, uh, yeah. So, so it was literally just the stroke and then you got the diagnosis. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So they took blood and everything. So that's how they so it's great that they it. caught that because a lot of people probably would have waited yes. much longer for a diagnosis like that. But it's a very interesting turn of events that you went from 14 when you're probably at your most invincible to... Yes you know, being fully able-bodied to then, especially being on blood thinners, that's something with the contact sports, like if you get cut, if you're injured yeah. or anything, you have to be extra yeah. careful now. Yeah. So you can't, I can't play and have to be extra careful because most people find out, especially women when they get pregnant and then they lose the baby at like eight months. So wow. that's when it gets, so it gets um, trickier for people with uh, APS, um, in the later stages of pregnancy. So I knew someone who had lupus and she didn't know she had this problem as well. And she lost her baby just five weeks before giving birth. So wow. Oh, how it's, sad. It's uh, not a good way to find out either. No. Yes. Yeah, so I suppose that, there's no good way to find out is there because it's such yeah. a life-changing diagnosis, but in a sense, it's lucky you caught it when there uh, wasn't another life on the table. Yeah. But I, I didn't really, you know, as a kid, you don't, pay full attention to the diagnosis if there's no pain because it's not really something that causes me pain so I continued playing football and uh, basketball and everything and yeah I had a massive blood clot in my um, lung at 17. Oh my goodness. Yeah and that nearly costed me my life because um, the doctor I went to said it was just a muscle cramp basically so I waited two days until I couldn't breathe before I sought help at the hospital. And yeah, they took my mom aside. They said, um, if she doesn't make it through the night, she's going to die. And my dad was in the US, so he was 24 hours away. Wow. Uh, and that day, my sister was in at the police station for, um, 
you know, teenagers. Yeah, being badly behaved. <laughs> to sneak into clubs and stuff. Oh, like no. It was pretty stressful for my mom that night. Every single I bet. Together. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I wasn't worried. Strangely, I was just, uh, I guess when you're fighting for your life, it's actually um, easier not to think. Uh, of anything bad it's more like during the recovery period that it's very depressing yeah I think so, that's that's actually a really good point but I also wonder whether it had to do with your age you know when you're when you are 17 when you're a teenager despite the fact that you had this life-changing diagnosis three years before I also wonder if that had an effect on your your mindset because still as a teenager you were playing sports you know you have that attitude of like well of course I'll be fine um, not just that, I think I, I was more religious back then as well. So I was like, mm. like praying so hard and I was not, not only that, but, um, I think at that age I fought really hard. Like, you know, like you're like, um, like I refused to take, uh, any strong painkillers and stuff like this, which was kind of stupid, you know, like, uh, there's nothing to prove. <laughs> right. The painkillers, you're in severe pain for two months. You can't even, um, mm. I couldn't even uh, eat by myself or like uh, wow. I couldn't even sit up in bed by myself. I couldn't do anything by myself, basically. So I couldn't go to the bathroom and uh, everything I needed help with. So, Do you think that was, was your first real sort of experience with mortality too? That like it was the first time your body had really yes. hit rock bottom kind of? Yes. So it was the first time and it happened so quickly. You don't have time to think about it. So this uh, the second time I faced mortality was at 25. So I developed lupus after that at 20. And is that and comorbid with antiphospholipid syndrome? Because I know you mentioned that your friend with lupus also yeah. has the syndrome. Okay. Yeah, but my doctor says, because my body went under a huge physical stress at 17 with this episode. Yeah. Uh, it was like the worst case they had seen at the hospital and... <clears throat> um, he said that probably triggered, you know, um, the genes for lupus and all this subsequent stuff. Because if that never happened, maybe I would just only have antiphospholipid syndrome to deal with now. Wow. So at 24, they discovered that um, one of my heart valves um, was prolapsing. Mm. So I couldn't breathe. And over the course of a year, I was starting to struggle with breathing basically and um yeah so that was my second um experience. Brush with mortality yeah mortality and uh, it was different this time it was a slow uh, it's not fast it's slow because it happened over a year it's mm. like every month i realized like oh my i can't i can't breathe even more you know it's mm. like a slow so that was scary in a different way yeah um, and every night I was just on my knees crying like uh, like whoever's out there just uh, help me I'm not ready to die um, I'm too young to die blah blah mm. blah and, uh, I had to raise funds to do it at Cleveland Clinic in the U.S. because the doctors wow. here didn't want to do it um, basically the advice was conflicting. So the Cleveland Clinic says I'm young, I should get it done as soon as possible. And what was this, a surgery to fix the valve? Yeah, to um, repair the hard valve. Yeah, and here in Singapore, they didn't have the robots to do it. They would wow. have to do open heart surgery, and I didn't want that. I don't think it's good with, for my bones either. And the surgeon said, wait until you're nearly, you know, towards the end before you try doing it. So the advice was conflicting. Hmm. Yeah. So. And Cleveland Clinic, did they offer a minimally invasive option here? Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to do that because I was only 25 and I didn't think hmm. an open surgery made any sense. Yeah. Um, well, it certainly brings higher risk with it, especially for someone like you who's on blood thinners. Exactly. Um, so that was part of the problem with uh, so any surgery. They kind of hesitate because of my blood clotting disorder. So sometimes people with my blood clotting problem, um, they don't die from the surgery itself. They die from the blood recovery, right? Yeah. During surgery because they have to stop the blood thinners in order to do the surgery. Wow. 
Yeah, so they die not from the surgery, but from their condition. Yeah, so that's a tricky part, you know. So, yeah, so I, I managed to raise some funds, thanks to lots of kind people, like 100,000 USD. Wow. Um, well, that's get, what it costs to go to the Cleveland Clinic then. <laughs> yes, from here. Mm. Yeah, I love that hospital. The doctors were great. The surgeons were great. Um, uh, I mean, I really, I think that was the best hospital I've ever been to. Um, mm. Even even the admin staff were all, you know, in sync, um, aware of what was going on. Yeah, maybe because I was an international patient. I don't know. Well, also because you're someone with a very, you know, a, a combination of illnesses, a very serious condition. You know, one would hope that like they take it seriously. Yeah. And you also get what you pay for, right? Like if you're paying a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, one would hope the level of care is quite high. Exactly. Uh, I didn't pay all, but I, um, my family had to be flown there. We had to stay sure. for months, so that was included in the cost as well. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah not just the surgery itself yeah so mm. yeah because my whole family was there with me and uh I, we had to stay for two months I wasn't allowed to fly because there were some air bubbles um still wow uh, in my, uh, around my heart and stuff so we had to wait yeah wow yeah. my goodness so you had that surgery and they were they managed to repair the valve then yeah you did a great job I could tell because um um, you know, sometimes with these heart surgeries, your boobs kind of get a shifted. Ah, interesting. I, I could tell he, he tried to make it aesthetically. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Good job, doc. Yeah. So surprisingly, he tried a new, um, he tried a new technique with me. Mm. So I don't remember what it was, but they basically tried to prevent more blood clots uh, or be able to go in by draining all the blood from my heart, I think, so that they could go in um, more wow. easily. Yeah, so it was um, it was a new technique they tried on me as well. So Wow. Interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, I basically chose my surgeon myself, like, uh, on the website. And I thought, I think I like this doctor and I, the surgeon, and I was like, okay, I'll go with him, so... He was very nice. Very nice. Yeah, good. So you had a good relationship with this doctor, which is a huge part of going in for such a serious surgery. You want to make sure you like and trust the person. Yeah, I'm not sure if he remembers me now, but <laughs> it's been a few years. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'll always remember remember him. Well, yeah. he changed your life. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think after that episode, um, I'm no longer afraid of dying because <laughs> uh-huh. I've. Faced like another two times due to my blood clotting disorder because uh, I, I had two recent episodes where um, you know during your period you have um, when it releases an egg it kind of uh, exploded yeah so mm. it wouldn't stop bleeding basically wow. it was so, this, like, a cyst that might have popped kind of thing it just normal women can get it too so um, when it releases an egg um, I think uh, sometimes um, it doesn't stop bleeding. Oh, but, interesting. Um, women, it gets absorbed. They don't even know sometimes. They just feel some pain. But for me, it just happens so quickly. My blood counts um, dropped by like half. And the problem with me is I have um, antiphosph- uh, uh, antibodies in my blood. Hmm. So um, it's really hard to find blood for me here. So in two days, they can't even find me blood, that kind of situation wow so transfuse yes kind of situation yes. So the second time um I, w- I went to a my regular hospital they they had to inject me with all the blood clotting drugs and then they were trying to transfer me to another hospital because they didn't have all the specializations there. they didn't have a gynecologist section um and the other hospitals emergency rejected me they said i was too high risk and we don't want to take you Wow. Uh, that was just ridiculous. So they preferred not to treat you rather than to try. Yeah. So I think they, I'm not sure, maybe it's a political thing, but it went on for like uh, eight hours, like uh, I'm like dying on the bed, you know, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And they said, um, we need um, an approval from a gynae bef- before we can uh, accept you as a uh, safe to be taken. So I had to be transferred to another hospital nearby um, with a gynecology um, with a gynecologist to approve me to be transferred. 
Oh my goodness. So many hoops to jump through. It sounds like you're in the U S with all these hoops. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She didn't even, she didn't even examine me. She said, you just need to go to the other hospital right away. Yeah. (laughs) So she was also um, pushing for me to go over. And finally, I think after eight hours I went over and Mm. yeah. So that was bad. I wrote an article about it. My, um, I, I wrote to the hospital about it, but I never heard back, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so at this point, I mean, that's more recent and you've had these brushes with death, but there's more diagnoses that happened in between. Uh, so I have lupus. I have epilepsy. Um, when did that start happening? I know you had the stroke when you were younger, but this caused seizures later on. Um, I think I started having like visual field problems and um, they tested my uh, brain waves and everything. And they said I had epilepsy, but um, at 20, I didn't have any like uh, seizures yet. Like uh, I didn't pass out or anything. I think I first passed out at somewhere in my thirties and uh, my first uh, grand mal seizure. And uh, yeah, they called the ambulance and everything. Cause uh <laughs> They were so they were they were terrified. I mean, uh, mm. you watch someone convulsing on the on the floor, yeah. And uh, the funny thing is, I um, it's preferable for me compared to my other illnesses because there's no pain, <laughs> I right? Just, but the problem is, after that, I'm very confused for a long time, and it, it can be annoying because you're trying to work or do anything, and you're just like mixing everything up. And I can't even count like two plus three, basically like, uh, like two plus three. And I have to like think really hard. What's the answer? You know? Yeah. It causes a lot of brain fog then for sure. And is that something that they, the doctors might think is also related to the antiphospholipid syndrome because of the blood clotting issues? But it's really hard to tell. So they were doing um, some psychological tests on me because for a year because they couldn't tell where it was coming from. Is it the epilepsy? Is it the antiphospholipid? Is it the lupus? Is it my um, mental health, uh, uh, depression, anxiety? You know, they couldn't tell and kind of ruled it out one by one. And they said, maybe it's uh, uh, like lupus in the brain or something, but it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Cause it's not very, um, you can't really measure it. So it's a bit tricky. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. And there's still more, though, in all of this, despite we think the, the diagnoses are over, but there's also what's that? Dogren syndrome. Dogren yeah. syndrome. Okay. And that's related sort of to lupus. It's kind of similar, right? That's right. So for me, um, they use the same drugs to treat it. So uh, for me, the main manifestations are like dry eyes, dry mouth, and the at, at my worst, it was the most severe pain, I would say. Um, I mean, I think most people don't realize how painful a dry mouth can be. It's mm. like needles stabbing into your whole tongue. Um, yeah, so it's for all my autoimmune diseases, it's um, only steroids help to push the pain down. Mm. I mean, painkillers don't even work. Morphine doesn't work. Um but the trade-off with uh, steroids is when I take too much, I go a bit mental. Like, uh, um, it causes like really high anxiety, and I can't sleep. I go crazy. I'm just like. A, Aside from the I, fact that there's already, I'm sure, mental health concerns associated with all these diagnoses and how you've had to adjust your lifestyle, but then these drugs have side effects too. So it's a trade-off, and sometimes I have to weigh like how much pain do I want to take with how much uh, anxiety I want to deal with, and uh, wow. yeah, sometimes the anxiety is not worth it. Yeah, yeah. So it's a constant balancing act. Yeah, exactly. And it's and you've been getting diagnoses and treatments. I mean, all in all, really for like the past fifteen twenty years, it's been going on. It's about twenty years, and I'm on a. I've I've been on a fairly high dose of steroids for the entire time because we've tried ten different um, immunosuppressants, and none of them work. So, I'm one of those patients that need to be on steroids for now, like uh, permanently. Yeah, right. And right. you know, in these strange times, I mean, we're talking in the middle of this COVID pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're one of these patients who is very much considered high risk. Yeah. 
you know, and it's important for people to know, like you look completely fine, you know, but just because someone looks completely fine, if they tell you they're high risk, they're high risk, just trust them. (laughs) Absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, your mom was around a lot helping you out, especially in the earlier days with your diagnoses and treatments. Did you find that you leaned on her a lot or found another personal advocate at any point along this journey? Or did you learn to become your own advocate? I think I learned to be my own advocate because um, she she used to follow me on my medical appointments, but would end up arguing <laughs> after the appointments because <laughs> we didn't agree or she should ask the doctor questions that I didn't think were um, right or stuff like this. And I basically told her, stop coming with me to appointments. Otherwise, we'll argue all the time. So I ended up um, going to for my appointments alone. And um, during that era, there were no like mobile phones. So I used to bring my notebook and write some poems for two hours and wait for the doctor. So it was good um, alone time for me, read or something. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> my dad, he used to travel a lot. So he wasn't around uh, a lot to, uh, yeah, but he's always the first to be there when I'm in the, emergency department yeah no matter what time it is so so he's the person to be there sign all the forms and stuff like that um but I think over the years um I can't think of anybody (laughs) I mean there were people that came and went you know um that that were um appeared when they were needed during uh, certain periods of time but no one that really um stayed there from beginning to end and um yeah i think i learned how to rely on myself to be my own advocate because for example for the recent um cases in the hospital where i nearly died again um i was telling all the junior doctors what to do step one step two step three step four because um they were panicking and they don't know what to do and i've experienced it before so i kind of know the steps to handle it yeah and you have different anxiety levels over different you know routes with this it sounds like because you know the steps obviously and they don't so like they're freaking out you're calm because this is your normal (laughs) Uh, I think when it's um periods of like super high stress in the hospital I'm actually calm it's strange. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So in some ways you were meant to be in a hospital, whether as a patient or a practitioner, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can handle the stress though. And that's important because so many people living with chronic illness have medical traumas and have trouble being in these kinds of situations. I learned from that. Like uh, I used to look to the doctors a lot and I just take whatever they say as, you know, truth. And over the years I realized not it's not always right. It caused me pain, sometimes permanent damage. And now I'm just, if I need something, if I don't feel something's right, I just speak up. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind yeah. of learned from bad experiences. It sounds also like you, uh, you know, in pushing your mom away in some of those earlier appointments that yeah. you were really also very true to your own body from the very beginning. Like you sort of plugged into what you were feeling and knew what was right for you. Um. I think at that age, I was still learning. Maybe I was still learning. So it was a bit of bravado, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But has that impacted your relationship with your parents too? That like, I mean, I know they're showing up, but when you've had to push them away, has that caused strain in your relationships? I don't tell them much about my condition because they don't understand any, don't understand in a sense of scientific way. You know, like I told my mom, I wish she would read up more about my uh, health on the internet. She says she's not the kind of person to, to read like a lot of stuff she just can't absorb it you know yeah so they do show support in different ways like financially they pay for my medical bills every month they're there when I'm in the hospital so they show it in a different way yeah but not in a maybe it's an Asian thing I don't know but um, I don't get much emotional support from them or um, yeah I mean I think all of this stuff is it's all such a case-by-case basis but it's interesting that you bring up that cultural you know, aspect of it, because maybe that is part of it is that it's like, it's so personal that it's something that you experience on your own. Mm. So you're managing 
A lot of symptoms, potential symptoms, triggers day to day. And as you've said, you're on your steroids and having to monitor levels. What's a typical day looking like for you now? And how are you balancing the demands of work and life and working around what your body is telling you? Yeah. So um, right now I have like uh, web jobs to do. So I'm quite happy because I haven't had one in a long time. And that's money and money is important, you know, (laughs) to survive. so right now, more than ever, I really need to pace and uh, make sure I have enough rest and my stress levels are down, which is very hard for me because I think for me, work is the number one stress <clears throat> trigger. And yet um, it's necessary in order to pay the bills. Exactly. Mm. Um, so my, my normal day is, I don't know, I, 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 I've learned more or less to listen to my body so if I really can't, especially brain fog, if I just can't do it today, I just leave it aside. I do something that I can do. Maybe I can write a bit. Um, maybe I can, even if I have to sit and just stare at the wall, fine. I just do that for a day because usually in one or two days, I'm better. And um, <clears throat> I become much more productive after that. So there's no point forcing, forcing things because uh, it just makes it worse and you're wasting energy. So I spend that time resting instead. So that helps a lot. So if the job has some flexibility, it's great. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Have you struggled to find work that's flexible and allows you to work from home as well? Or has that been something that's come fairly easily? I think with the blog, it's become much easier because people are much more aware of my illnesses and they're, they're like uh, more understanding and they go like, uh, you know, take your time or we understand um, or I explain to them in the beginning, I might need some extra time. So, I mean, I've taken on jobs that were on tight timelines and, I mean, it didn't work out well. So, um, but I think sometimes you just need to try, even though it ruins your reputation a bit, I guess. But um, yeah, you just have to try, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've been trying for a very long time and and obviously have have done well. Um, And I, I suppose in that sense, you know, the sharing of your story on the blog, as you say, has been a gift for potential employers, but also for so many of us in the community. I I know you mentioned about the experience you had, um, you know, waiting the eight hours for the gynecologist referral. And I'm wondering, given the nature of your illnesses, all of which are invisible to the naked eye, have you been in a position where you've been confronted and forced to validate the fact of their existence to someone else who couldn't see what was going on? Give it whether it was a doctor or a friend. It I, it happened. It happens a lot with strangers. I think um, uh, like taxi drivers or uh, people like that. That you know they go like uh, they they claim that I'm lying because I'm too young or you look fine or they ask me to donate money for like uh, charities and I'm like I'm thinking like I need the money myself and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough one. I know how you feel. Yeah. Me? Delayed to me. But um, uh, yeah, I think it happens more here for me with strangers. Um, I'm thankful I've had, um, I think my friends are mostly, or even acquaintances have been understanding so far, even if they don't really understand it. Yeah. Um, So it's mostly with strangers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, If people aren't sort of as familiar with your particular you know, yeah. personality aspects and sort of how you live your life. That's makes a lot of sense. I have to explain a lot to strangers too. It can be exhausting. <laughs> no, I don't really. 
uh, it used to bother me. Now I'm just like, I tell them off sometimes. Yeah. Good yes. for you. Yeah. Cause it's none of their business. Yeah. I just mm. tell them off. Like, uh, you know, you know, you want to see my medical files. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. What about within the medical system? You know, do you think you've ever experienced any prejudice or even perhaps privilege, you know, um, particularly as it regards your self-identity? So because you're a, a female in particular, you know, going to the hospital at home, do you think that maybe you would have been taken more seriously in certain circumstances if you were male? Um, no, I think for me, um, I think the healthcare system here is pretty fair. Mm. And I think because of the way our society was built as well. So, I mean, we have four official races and languages here and they've always taken care to make sure everything's, um, more or less fair. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky issue here. So it's always taken into account. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, prejudice is something that's always um, um, looked into. Like, uh, yeah, so I haven't experienced any um, any of that. And I think uh, my main doctor, my rheumatologist, is kind of like a dad to me. So oh, that's lovely. Or see me at my worst uh, twenty years ago. So I've known him for almost almost twenty years. Wow knows everything about I think he knows more about me than my parents <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he's like my second dad and um I have a good relationship with him that's really good what about when you were in the states like when you went to Cleveland Clinic did you experience anything there that made you see the sort of like different levels of like racial and ethnic and and gender disparity no they were all really nice too that's great that's really wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the healthcare system then, because you've experienced these two totally different systems. I think it's tell us, like, yeah, go ahead. Tell us how it's working, how it's not working, where you are, and and from what you saw in the U.S. Okay, I mean, um, so having said that, like, uh, my doctor's fantastic and everything. I think I deal, I still deal with um, bad doctors, um, but these are like uh, new doctors that I'm not familiar with, and. Um, um, doctors that I think fear more for their own reputation rather than your own health. So they kind of go like, we don't want to op- uh, operate on you because you're too risky or, you know, it might ruin my reputation. Right. Or, um, wow. I mean, they don't say that, but it's obvious. No, uh, but I mean, and that happens everywhere. It's, it's scary yeah. that that happens. Um, so I do I encounter doctors like that. Uh, and I think I've learned to just fire them. Yeah. Or doctors that just don't care. They, they're more interested in a certain specialization and not your case. You're too complicated. They don't want to deal with you. Um, they want something that's easier, you know? It goes uh, a bit against the Hippocratic Oath when you think about yeah. it, though, doesn't it? So they just want... Um, the presence of ego there. Yeah, there's an ego. And also, um, maybe they don't actually love the jobs that much. I don't know. Um yeah, I don't know, because I don't think they're evil people, but uh, maybe they have different interests. Um, because I do see, like, for example, one psycholo- psychiatrist that I'd fired, um, she treats all the people really well, and then she treats me like crap. So I don't know if she's more interested in, like, elderly care or something like that. Yeah, so, or maybe she's only interested in, say, psychiatric disorders and not something she can't solve here. Yeah, so what she did was just to, whenever I went in, so how much medication do you want this time? You know, like, I'm like, I I don't, it's not working. I want a solution, you know? Yeah. You need to have a more personal relationship, and she didn't offer that. Yeah, not really personal, but a solution. I don't care if they're personal sure. enough. It's more like a solve my problem. <laughs> mm, interesting. Okay. Work with me, basically, work with me. Yeah. Uh, um, not not ask me like, uh, do you want to adjust your dosage higher or lower? You know, it's the same thing. I'm not there to adjust my medications up and mm. down when it's not working. Um, yeah, you need a different medication, or perhaps to not be on the medication and have another. Yeah. yeah hired her and then I, I think I've re- become pretty good at firing doctors yeah 
Um, I mean, with 20 years of experience under your belt, I would hope <laughs> that you're, you see, you're obviously very good at discerning what works for you and what doesn't at this point. Yeah. yeah. What about the cost of healthcare too? Cause you mentioned, you know, having to pay bills compared yeah. to like the money that you had to raise to go to the Cleveland clinic versus mm-hmm. what it costs you on a regular basis at home in Singapore. How does that measure out in comparison? Do you think? Um, it's not cheap. Uh, my medications are the, 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 the things that cost the most money. So it's about one to $2,000 every month. And it's not wow. guys because um, the immunosuppressants are not government subsidized. Uh, so we have a, a few healthcare schemes here and one of it is for chronic illnesses, but lupus is not covered. Um, well, that makes no sense. Yeah, so they cover stuff like diabetes, um, heart problems. So the more more heavily funded chronic illnesses. Yeah, yeah. So I think they're working towards it, though, to uh, cover lupus and stuff. But it doesn't make sense because our medications cost so much money. And the medications I need help financially with are the ones that are not covered. And the ones I don't need help with are covered. So, um, I mean, yeah, $10 subsidized is nothing compared to a thousand dollars subsidized, you know? So yeah, absolutely. So it's sort of, I mean, it's interesting because it sounds like in some ways it's a similar problem that people are experiencing here in the States with medication prices. Okay. Yeah. What about the care itself? Um, Is that something that's subsidized too, or is that something that you have to pay in addition to? Seeing the doctor is um, comparatively cheaper. So it's, it's okay. Unless, uh, so we have a public and private, uh, so you can see a public doctor and the private, you just get seen faster. Um, so I have about, I have some doctors where I see privately because the public doctors for those doctors were just not good, good enough. So, um, or I needed to see them quickly because I'm in emergency and then I had to stay with a private plan after that. And you can't switch back to public. Oh, yeah. that's tough. Okay. Yeah. So with my main rheumatologist, I'm on the public. So that's um, good at least. Yeah. Yeah. So he's great at helping me to get referrals and uh, stuff if I need. So. Mm, wow. But it's still a challenge to pay medical bills when you're living with chronic illness. And yeah. that's an important thing for us to understand here is that yeah, it doesn't matter I- where you live. <laughs> When they retire, I don't know like how I'm going to pay my bills and stuff too. Yeah, I mean they yeah. don't have either because of this, and I feel bad about that. Yeah, yeah. So guys, hire Cheryl. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she needs to pay for her current bills and her future ones. Yes, of course. So tell us about your advocacy work. Tell us about the work that you do and about a chronic voice. Um, it started out when I was, when I had tuberculosis for which I caught off the streets randomly. And it was a year of, uh, it was quite a traumatic year because I had to increase my steroids for by to body weight because, um, the TB meds, um, inter, uh, inter, interact with them and they become less, um, the efficacy reduces. So you need to increase it, but the side effects are also increased. Wow. From, How long ago was this? Um, maybe four or five years ago, okay. I think. So you yeah. don't get immunized when you're a child against uh, tuberculosis? I'm not sure you can get immunized against that, but here you're, you're forced to immunize um, or whatever that's compulsory. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that... I think I, I was immunized, yes. but oh, so um, It was like a different strain. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I still caught it. Yeah, because that was a long time ago. So that was, I started, I had to quit work. I just, uh, it was just, I couldn't work. It was just um, too difficult to work. I I couldn't, I just sat there and could not work. Um, So I started the blog as something to do at home every day because I was home every day and, you know, just stuck going a bit crazy. Um. And it gave me like a, something to do. And I love to write. So that's how the blog started. It was just more for an outlet to um, survive being at home. Yeah. And it kind of just grew organically. Yeah. Absolutely. And on the blog, you're sharing your experiences, but you're also talking to other people who've had chronic illness experiences. I mean, it sort of runs the gamut, doesn't it? 
Yeah, um, I, I, it's more of a broad, um, broad kind of uh, blog. It's not really like focused on just say lupus alone or shoguns alone. Um, I think I'm more interested in touching on say emotions or mental issues or pain that we all feel in some sense, rather than um, just specializing in one topic, which I get bored of personally, if I just talk about epilepsy all the time, for example. So I'm more interested in the, um, maybe the thoughts behind it or, you know, human, humans, human subjects, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you're also finding that there's a lot of common threads, no matter what the chronic illness, the mental health and emotional experiences. Can you share with us some of the observations that you've discovered? Um, so some observations would be sometimes a lot of people, so the pain is sometimes not the worst part about chronic illness, say, um, the isolation, um, the lack of support or, um, uh, the fatigue. Sometimes people find other things worse than the pain itself. So these are some, uh, common uh, these are some unexpected things i would say people might think like pain is the worst aspect of it but sometimes it's not the mental health issues yeah i think that comes along with any chronic illness <laughs> yeah at some point at some point so it's important to really be taking care of our mental health isn't it you know if you're dealing with a physical issue know that there's going to be a mental health component too i think it was something i neglected for a long time because i thought uh, uh, here there's a stigma probably with it and my doc, even my doctors didn't think I needed it they were like nah you'll be fine just be happy uh, just think happy thoughts and that's from a that's from a doctor so wow that's short-sighted to- okay <laughs> yeah but now I think the education even amongst doctors are changing and they're they're taught to refer patients to psychiatrists now as well. So that's that's a good change. I, I guess I was too late, but I I had to advocate for myself and insist that I needed a psychiatrist. I needed it. Yeah. it sounds like you've been so plugged into who you are from such an yes. early stage. I think a lot of people might not have had the same chutzpah that you did, you know, the same moxie to like really dig their heels in and go like, this is what I need. Cause you seem to be very clear about that. After 10 years. So that's true. Yeah. 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 It took time. It took time. And sometimes it does take time and that's okay. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I'm just like, just give it to me. Yeah. 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 So 10 years before I finally saw uh, mental health and I think that's actually something that needs to be um, taken care of right from the very start like w- once you get diagnosed I think a psychologist should be on your team already yeah mm. what about that idea of creating a team I mean you have your rheumatologist and specialists that you see regularly but do you think it's important for people who are living with chronic illness to be able to curate a team of doctors, including mental health, and and make that accessible. Yes, it's important that um, all your doctors are working with you, and it's important, I think, for the for your doctors to be willing to communicate with each other, because I mean, your body's not separate parts; it's one whole body, and uh, sometimes things overlap. Actually, things overlap a lot. So you can't just go to a heart doctor and just see what's what's the problem with the heart. You have to see how it's linked to the immune system, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a lot of, uh, that's a big problem with a lot of, uh, with our current healthcare system. They kind of divide the body into parts, brain, heart, you know, joints, and, you know, they can't figure something out because it's all separated. But they all come together and it's much easier to solve a problem when it, um, when, when doctors communicate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. So we're sort of sliding into the end portion of our interview and I like to close up with a couple of top three lists. And I wondered if you could give us your top three tips for fellow Spoonies. Um, For those of us who are also living in the chronic illness world, maybe living with a diagnosis, maybe waiting for one, maybe been in it for years like you, what are your top three tips for making this work? So I think the first would be if you feel something's wrong, to trust yourself and not wait to see um, a doctor or whoever you need, you know. Um, I think 
even waiting one or two days nearly costed me my life. So that was a number of first lesson, huge lesson I learned. Don't wait, just go and seek help. And if the doctor brushes you aside, find more help because, uh, I mean, the damage could be really long lasting and it's just not worth it. Um, yeah, if they call you like a hypochondriac, whatever, just seek help and find out what's wrong. So don't wait. Yeah, that's that's a huge, um, huge lesson I learned the hard way. Um, a second would be, I think um, mental health is really important. Don't wait too long to seek help because all of us with chronic illness, even healthy people, face some... Um, mental health issues and you're not alone you're not weird you're not strange um i think it's important to even get a psych a psychologist to guide you through the process right from the start i think it would make a huge difference um in how you manage to deal with it instead of um i mean in the beginning you really don't know what to do and um yeah you can figure it out for a while but at some point in your journey you will still need um, mental health yeah and third would be to find something you enjoy doing and just really focus on that on on the bad days or good days so that will um, carry you through yeah so for me it's writing and it it there's I'm never bored in that sense you know I can always fall back to this um, writing and it's not just writing but branches that spread out from writing for example interacting with groups that write or people that write reading blogs so these are all connected back to writing so So you found community in writing it sounds like exactly community so it's like a passion but it spreads out um, to a community so Mm. I think that's lovely never bored yeah and it sounds like it's something as you say you can always turn to whether it's private or public, you know, I could, mm. that's still linked to writing, you know, in a sense. So, yeah. Mm, that's lovely. And what about, this is the, the fun list, the top three things that give you unbridled joy. I know you just mentioned writing, which is probably yeah. on the list, but despite lifestyle adjustments that you've had to make, yeah. what are the top three things that, I mean, these can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, but three things that you turn to that make you really happy. I have some predictions as to what these will be. (laughs) I feel like birds and writing are on this list. (laughs) Because if you guys follow Cheryl on social, you'll see she posts about her birds who are beautiful, by the way. And like, usually like, I, you know, I occasionally I'll watch like animal videos, you know, and it's the odd video that'll be like a cute bird one, but your birds are like super chill. So whatever you're doing is like a bird mom. It's working. <laughs> well, they, they poop all over me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be okay with the poop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But one of them likes to sit on my shoulder while I'm working and he's really mm. the bites my ear. He wants head rubs all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, his, his, yeah. His are quite painful. Yeah. But he's cute. He's cute. Yeah, because we raised them as babies. Yeah. Mm, amazing. I, so are I, they are they on the list though, birds? Are they on this three uh, things that give you joy? No. <laughs> they don't make it to the top three. That's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> I have only two. Let's let's put it this way. I have only two passions in life, travel and writing. Mm. And yeah, so since we need three, we'll put the birds in. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That does it. That does it. Honestly, I would love to have a dog, but I can't afford it. Yeah. I would like something I could hug with my whole body, if you get what I mean. A bigger Um, bird. (laughs) No, no. They they have huge, huge... um, Huge beaks. Yeah, huge beaks. Yeah. Mm. Um, And they're expensive. They can... Like a few thousand dollars for them. Oh, yeah, I bet. (laughs) But, um, I mean, I love my birds. Don't get me wrong. Mm. They're like my um, everyday companions, you know, and they give me um, emotional support and they love to sing along to my music. So it's fun. Yeah. 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 Travel, travel and writing are the main thing. So if I weren't sick, I think I would really um, love to be a travel literature writer. Mm. And I think even when I was sick at 24, also that's how I discovered I had my heart problem while I was traveling on the train through the Mongolian desert. Wow. Yeah, Trans-Siberian Railway, and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, probably it's a dusty air. But actually, it was my heart um, 
collapsing. Mm. Yeah, so that's how I discovered it. So even with my health problems, I was actually traveling to pretty remote places because that's what I love to do and I had to make a choice. Either I go and take the risk or I don't go at all. Yeah, so... So So travel has certainly changed for you now, your relationship with it. I still love going out to really um, remote places, like uh, places with beautiful scenery, uh, with interesting culture. But um, I just go with lots of preparation and um, uh, try to find a travel companion if I can and go through the protocols with them if I like pass out what to do because some of these places have no hospitals or transport. Yeah, and uh, I don't think I've, um, well, I would say the only change is finance. So mm-hmm. I don't have money to travel as much as I used to. Otherwise, I wouldn't let this stop me either, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really vital that you still be able to do the things you love. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. a really tough one because it's expensive and, as you say, takes all this preparation. So I kind of reason with myself, like uh, anyone could die crossing the street, you know. I try to reason with myself and yeah, that's how I, that's how I, uh, you know, I try to reason with myself with stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. To justify whether a trip is worth it for you. And, but I think it's so smart, you know, bringing a travel buddy along, having a friend with you because you can create experiences with them too and memories, but you know, knowing that you have someone with you who knows what to do. Well, I was going to travel alone, really. I mean, it was either do it or don't do it. But my mom was so worried. She forced my dad to follow me on one trip. Mm. So I had to, he had to tag along for a month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which was a bit tough. (laughs) Yeah, of course. But uh, it still worked out. I mean, it's still safer to have um, someone with you all the time, if possible. But it is certainly a challenge, I think, being an adult and being more tethered to your family, whether that's because of your health needs or financial needs or both or even more. It can really cut into your independence. Yeah, like I live with my parents and I I feel like a teenager like half the time. So (laughs) I'm 35, like a teenager like half the time. And it's an Asian thing as well because... um, you're never really a grown up to them, even if you're 60 and they're 80, you know, like you're never really a grown up to them either. Yeah. And so it's a, a slightly uh, cultural thing as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about who you are and your work and, and all of your experiences? Um, not that I, I could, no, I don't think I can think of anything. We covered it all, huh? <laughs> okay. I think most <laughs> yes. Well, and I think very important, can you tell everyone where to find you? Yes, uh, you can find me on my blog, so a chronicvoice.com. And from there, you can access all my social media as well. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. And we'll link to that on the website page for this episode as well. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Cheryl, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I'm really pleased we were able to do this. it folks thanks for listening as always please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod we love your feedback and suggestions so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions ideas for topics to cover in future episodes or just want to say hello we're all about relationships and collaboration here so credit where credit is due music for this episode is by sean hart who can be found at seanhart.com Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.